This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity that we have to study your word today. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is on the basis of your word that we understand truth. It is your word that is an expression of the thought of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul refers to the scripture as the mind of Christ. Now, Father, as we take this time to study your word, we recognize that it is the highest form of honor and worship that we can bestow on you because it is taking the time out of our life to put our focus and attention on the teaching of your word, to learn how to think as Christ thinks. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the teaching of your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to start a new study after... Some five and a half years of going through the the Gospel of John and then the Epistle of John. One of the things that we have noted in the course of that time not only has to do with a lot of information about the Lord Jesus Christ that we picked up in the Gospel of John as we studied his life, but we also saw that in the course of our study of the epistle of John, the epistles of John, that one of the major problems facing the early church was a problem in Christology, a problem in Christology in understanding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not simply a problem restricted to the early church. It's a major problem today. And often what we run into today is you will hear people, and I'm hearing this more and more. In fact, I was sent an email this morning that referenced a website. And on that website, there was an article posted. And in that article, which was a it really wasn't a critique of Christianity. It was more of a presentation of a New Age form of meditation. But in there, they took their jibes at biblical Orthodox Christianity. 
And in that context, once again, you read something that I'm hearing more and more of today, and that is that, well, Christianity left its uh, Old Testament Jewish roots when it when Paul took it out of the Jewish context, and it picked up a lot of ideas from Greek philosophy and Greek thought, which really changed Christianity. And so much of what is considered to be uh, standard Christianity today is merely the result of this infusion of Greek thought and Greek philosophy uh, into what had been a pretty decent form of Judaism. And that is so far from the truth that it's just amazing, yet you hear it said over and over and over and over and over again, and that is the big lie technique that Satan loves to use, and that is if you hear the lie uh, repeated enough, loudly enough, who cares about documentation, then pretty soon people will believe that. And that is a line that is being espoused by uh, uni- university professors in college classrooms. You hear it on uh, interviews, on news shows, on talk shows, you hear it in uh, the, from narrators of different shows on the Discovery Channel, A&E, different uh, programs such as that. And the result is that Christians today are often under assault and they're not even aware that they're being shot at because they don't understand, understand all the dynamics that under, underlie this. And the assault is always, as it has been since the early church, is on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've decided that having concluded our study of the epistles of John, and since it is, after all, the Christmas season, that we will begin a new series that will extend far beyond Christmas, and I am entitling this series Basics on Jesus Christ. Last year, if you remember, when I finished Daniel sometime in September of 2002, I started a new concept, and that is to put together, as I finish current series, put together short, what I would call intermediate basics, basic series, not just a short basics. If you look at the way most pastors, as I've done in the past and others, have done basic series, you take something like sin, salvation, man, the creation, God, the essence of God, the Trinity, and cover them in basically one 45-minute to an hour session. And those are short basics that are really good for new believers to introduce them to, to Scripture. And then, of course, you have much more advanced studies that we get into every now and then. But it's important to have an intermediate basic series that goes beyond the simple one-hour introduction, covers most of the uh, basic issues that are related to a different area of uh, systematic theology and to have those available in what I would consider to be short series of somewhere between 15 to 20 tapes. Ideally, what I'm shooting for is something that we, where we can get all the lessons in, in one series onto a C, one CD so that if you're talking with someone or you have a friend and they're, they have questions about salvation, then you can take that one CD with the salvation series on it and give that to them, or one CD on the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to start, start this series this morning on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And technically, this is referred to as Christology, the study of uh, Christology. And the basic definition of Christology comes from two words, 
Christ, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ from the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one, uh, plus the suffix logos, meaning the science or the study of something. Technically, logos means word, but it came to mean the study of something or the reason behind something. So Christology is defined as the study of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are really two parts to Christology. And if you can just remember those two phrases, the person and the work of Christ, then that will help you organize all the information under the uh, heading of Christology. Now, when you look at the first topic, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that focuses primarily on the person of the Savior and the event that, that, that pulls that together is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the question is, who was the baby in the manger? Or as the hymn puts it, what child is this? And as you answer the question of who is that in the manger, that brings into focus all of the issues related to his deity, his humanity, his eternality, his presence in the Old Testament. All of that is part of understanding who Jesus Christ is. The second category, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, focuses on a study of the objective aspects of what Christ did on the cross in distinction from the application of the work. Now, that's a technicality that's lost on most people, but when you talk about the work of Christ, you're talking about his objective work in terms of atonement on the cross, whereas soteriology is looking at the pretty much the same material from the vantage point of its application in salvation to the individual. And I covered much of that in the series I did last year on the plan of salvation. So in this series, I'm primarily just going to focus on that first aspect, which is understanding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll start off with real baby steps in order to understand the basic concepts of the person of Christ. And then as we go through the passages of Scripture and as we go through an understanding of the doctrine, and we'll go back and we'll look at the history of the doctrine as it was developed in the early church. We've done some of that in the past. And so the repetition will be good for you. Eventually, it will help you understand why this is so important. See, it's not just a matter of understanding what the Bible teaches about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would imagine that everybody in this congregation can pretty much give me a definition of the hypostatic union, that it's the union of uh, undiminished deity and true, hum- true humanity united together in one person forever. But having said that, what have you said, and why have you said it? And what are the implications of that, and why has that made such a difference? And I will uh, just give you a little hint of some of the uh, future attractions, is that there was a minor, what appears to many people to be a minor adjustment made to that definition at a synod in Toledo in Spain, that added a clause to the Chalcedonian Confession, which was a 
a doctrinal statement made at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., and it was the addition of the phrase and the Son in relationship to the Holy Spirit. The uh, Council of Chalcedon said the Father uh, sent the Holy Spirit, and at the Synod of Toledo they added the phrase the Father and the Son sent the Spirit. And it's that difference, just that minor difference, sets the stage and changes the way you look at authority in the Godhead. Now, why is that important? Because the Godhead is your view of ultimate reality. And how you view certain issues in relationship to ultimate reality are going to, if you think and you're logically consistent, they're going to affect day-to-day events and experiences, and the Godhead, think of the Godhead as a society. Now, I don't mean when I talk about the social implications of the Trinity, I don't want you to think of having a party. But there is a society of three persons when we think about the Trinity, and you can't talk about the deity of Christ without going to the Trinity and understanding what's happening in the Trinity. And though most of us can talk about the Trinity in terms of the fact that God is one in essence but three in person, I bet not a one of you here recognizes that if you're sitting down dialoguing with a Mormon, that they're not going to have a problem with that definition because of the way they redefine the terms. And so it's very important for us to be able to think clearly about these things. Well, when you think about ultimate reality in the Godhead and you realize that... that, uh, uh, how you view the authority structure and the relationship, uh, uh, the authority structure of that society is going to impact how you understand the authority structure in human society because as I've gone over again and again and again on, in our Wednesday night study of Genesis, fundamental issue in a Christian worldview is understanding the creator-creature distinction and that God is over against and completely distinct from the creation. But he created man in his image and likeness. Man is a reflection of who God is. And so in our social relationships, we reflect who God is without even thinking about it. We're going to reflect certain things about who God is, and because of sin, there's going to be a distortion of that. So... The point I'm making is just by the addition of that one phrase, it's made a major difference between Western Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church and subsequent Protestantism and Eastern Christianity. And it basically set up a scenario that was in the East that made them very prone to an autocratic rulership. And this is why you see in Eastern, in churches, dominated by Eastern Christianity, a proneness to autocratic, dictatorial, tyrannical government. It's because that in their view of ultimate reality, they have a distorted view of authority in the, in the Trinity, which was not corrected because they rejected that addition of that phrase from the Senate of Toledo, which is one of the reasons that the Eastern Church split off from the Western Church. So even though this seems 
at times like it gets a little abstract and like it gets a, a, a little divorced from our reality because we're going back and we're looking at certain historical formulations, I want you to understand that, that there are people throughout history who have thought profoundly and deeply about these things that influenced what they wrote in terms of politics and in terms of government and whether they consciously or unconsciously were aware of the impact of this, it nevertheless had a profound impact on the way the West, Western civilization looked at authority and reality in government. Not that it, there, there weren't dictators and autocrats in the West, but it, it, it shaped things in a profound way. And so, once again, it's just an illustration that theology really matters. It changes civilization, and it changes how you look at things. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We have to start with just basic concepts to understand what the Scripture teaches about Jesus Christ. So when we look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are some of the topics that we're going to look at? Well, first of all, we have to think about it in an organized manner. So we will look at it first in terms of the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ, and that's going to be subdivided into two areas, Christ in eternity past, which will focus on his eternality and his deity. And second, we will then focus on Christ in the Old Testament. So in this first subdivision, the pre-incarnate Christ, we will look at his deity as it's expressed uh, in, in terms of his eternality and other aspects of his character. And then we will look at Christ as he is portrayed in the Old Testament. And from there, we will go to the incarnation, begin to look at his deity and humanity as it is joined together at the incarnation, and that will focus our attention then on the dynamics of the virgin birth, and that will bring into play uh, several other facets of understanding who Jesus Christ is. So we're going to organize our thinking around these two events, the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. The birth focuses on who Jesus Christ is, and the death focuses on what he did. And we will begin by looking at a couple of passages in the Gospels. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. And while you're in Matthew 16, 13, as soon as you find that, I want you to keep your place there, and I want you to turn over a few pages to the 8th chapter of Mark, the next gospel, the 8th chapter of Mark, about verse 27. First thing we're going to look at by way of introduction as we're studying the who, who is Jesus Christ, I want us to think in terms of three questions that are raised in the Gospel of Matthew. Three questions that are raised in the Gospel of Matthew. And the first question that is raised is raised by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is seen in one sense. I want to look at it in Mark first, and then we'll go to Matthew In Mark, we read, 
Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Who am I? This is the first question. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, if you keep in your place in Mark 8, we're going to go back to Matthew, look at the whole context in Matthew first, then we'll go back to, to Mark. If you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 16, verse 13, Matthew adds a phrase to that question. Mark was not focused on that issue, so he left it out. Now, this raises a question in some people's minds. Well, it doesn't that affect inerrancy? No, it doesn't. If I, if I have a lengthy sentence and you only report the main clause, it doesn't mean that you have distorted what I've said. If you, the writers of the Gospels were not giving a biography of Jesus as we think of a biography today. The Gospels aren't biographies. They are Gospels. These were like tracts written at that time to explain who Jesus Christ is and what what he did from a certain vantage point. It was to explain the gospel. That's why they were called gospels. It's not a biography per se. In a modern biography, you explain everything there is to explain about a person. For example, for those of us who live in this bright and shiny corner of the world known as southeastern Connecticut, we are unaware of the fact that there has been a major motion picture release called the Gospel of John, which will never see the light of day east of the Hudson River. But there is a movie out there that I hear is fairly well done. What the purpose of that that movie was, was to go through and present Jesus as he is portrayed in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, uh, and, that, and all the all the conversation in the movie is taken directly out of the Gospel of John, and the the gaps in the narrative are taken care of by a by a narrator, who I believe is Christopher Plummer. But in one of the critiques that I read of the movie, or comments I heard about the movie, someone said, "Well, I wish that when when Peter had lopped off the ear of the temple servant, that." they would have shown in the movie that Jesus put the ear back on. And I read that and I said, yeah, but then it wouldn't be the Gospel of John. See, in the Gospel of John, John records the lopping off of the ear of the temple servant, but he doesn't record that Jesus put the ear back on. That's in the synoptic Gospels and the other Gospels. So when you read the Gospels, you have to realize that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what they were doing is taking certain events and sayings and statements of Jesus, and they were picking and choosing under the direction of the Holy Spirit in order to demonstrate a certain point. Matthew is writing from the vantage point of demonstrating that Jesus is the Messianic King. Mark is writing to show that Jesus is a servant. He's writing from a different perspective. So Mark is going to include or exclude data depending on how it fits his thesis statement. Matthew is going to include or exclude certain things depending on how it fits into demonstrating his thesis statement. For example, Matthew has many, many quotes from the Old Testament that are not found in either Mark or Luke, because what Matthew is doing is showing that Jesus fits 
the picture of the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. So he's going to pick up a term like son of man, which is a messianic term from Daniel 7. And we've looked at that many times. And uh, I'm not going to take the time to go back and look at the concept of, of the Son of Man in Daniel. But that's what what happens here. It's a messianic term. It was understood by the Jews to be a messianic term. So Jesus, when he asked the question, we get the whole question in Matthew. Mark left out the term Son of Man because Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, and Son of Man would not have communicated anything to a Gentile audience. So he just left the sentence in its abbreviated form, Who do men say that I am? But Jesus asked the whole question, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the reason I wanted to go and point this out from Matthew is because Matthew is showing that Jesus is making a self-conscious statement about his identity as the messianic hope of Israel. Jesus is not just a nice religious teacher. Jesus is not just coming along teaching a new morality. He's not a religious revolutionary who realizes that there needs to be some sort of reformation in Judaism and the Sadducees and Pharisees are just way out of control. He recognize, he knows who he is and he is making a specific claim to be the Messiah of Israel. Now that's important to understand. And as many writers have pointed out, either Jesus is who he claimed to be or he had to be the most arrogant or insane person ever to walk the face of the earth because of the claims that he made. Jesus just didn't expect people uh, to, to agree with him. He expected people to believe every detail of everything he said because he was God. He claimed to be God. This is not some, as I pointed out in the introduction, Jesus' claim to deity is not some something the church invented in the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th centuries and then added on to a, a an oral tradition that had been passed down through a couple of generations. Everything Jesus says fits specifically in a context of the Old Testament. You can't reject Jesus' claim to deity and his claim to be Messiah without just completely shredding the Old Testament. So Jesus asked them a question. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, I think that we need to go back and look at a few things in the context. Let's look at a few things in the context. We'll focus on the context of Matthew. I just want to point out a couple of high points to because this is not a question asked in a vacuum. And that's important for us to understand if we are witnessing. And, of course, the key point in, in witnessing is what do you think about Jesus Christ? And you don't just start there. Jesus didn't start there. Paul, as I pointed out many times when we were in we looked at Acts 14, Acts 17, when he's witnessing in a Gentile uh, situation, he doesn't, Paul did not start at the cross. He start, Paul started at creation. Jesus isn't starting at creation because his audience understands that. But Jesus is starting with his own credentials. And so let's flip back just a page or so to Matthew 15, pick up the context, Jesus is up on the Sea of Galilee. And here's a map. It's, we're looking at it from a little bit of a side angle. Up on that top left corner, the blue area there is the 
Mediterranean, and so we're sort of looking to the to the northwest. And this is the Sea of Galilee uh, down in this area. And so the events of this of chapters 15 and 16 in Matthew all take place around the Sea of Galilee. So he skirts the Sea of Galilee, goes up to the mountains, and he sits down. And a great multitude came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, uh, the maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and what? They glorified the God of Israel. Now that's an important phrase. They are glorifying not just God, but the God of Israel. What Matthew is saying here is that Jesus is demonstrating messianic credentials. In Isaiah 35.5, there is a clear statement to the Jews, a prophecy that when the Messiah came, he would give sight to the blind and the lame would be able to walk and the, uh, the deaf would hear. And that this is a sign of the Messiah. And among the rabbis, they had a tradition that there would be those healers who came along who might uh, heal the lame, they, but they would never heal a leper, and they would never give sight to the blind. Only the Messiah would do that. And so the point is made here that, the, that Jesus is doing that which was prophesied and predicted about the Messiah. So that's the first point in the context. He is giving sight to the blind, and he's healing the lame, and he is also, it's not just that the, the, um, that the mute hear, but they're deaf also. He's going to heal them, and we'll see that they are not only mute, but also deaf. That's mentioned in in uh, the parallel passage in Mark. Now, the next event that happens is that he's dealing with the multitude on the uh, near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He looks out on the crowd, and there's 4,000 men there. The text makes it clear there's 4,000 men, which means that there's probably close to 12,000 people there minimum, because for every male there's probably at least one female and one child. So we could see that 10, 12,000, maybe more are gathered there. Now, this is a huge crowd. You just think about that in terms of the logistics. And I don't think they had a porta potty outfit, you know, taking care of things there. And they certainly didn't have any, any catering groups out there taking care of all of their, uh, food needs and making sure that everybody had enough water and all this. So this crowd is going to get hungry and thirsty in a hurry. And Jesus expresses his compassion in verse 32. I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, that's some intense curiosity and excitement here, that they're staying for three days and three nights, just sleeping out on the sides of the hill with no food and and uh, very little water. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a multitude? And they're talking to the bread of life. Don't lose a context here. They're talking to Jesus. They've seen all these miracles. This is in Matthew 16. We've already had a tremendous amount take place. This is nearing the end of Jesus' public ministry, and these guys just haven't picked up on it yet. And they're saying, 
what are we going to do to feed all these people? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few fish. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the loaves and broke them in the fish. They passed them all out and fed the 4,000. In verse 38, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he got on, uh, he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. And that, here's Magdala here on the uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where the next event's going to take place. But Jesus has gone over there, and there he is met by the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the first thing that we see happen is that he is demonstrating his messianic credentials by giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And secondly, he is demonstrating his uh, sovereignty, his as a as a creator by extending the seven loaves and fish to feed a multitude of 10 or 12,000 plus. And after having done all of that, then the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and, and note the, the implication behind this is the that he's healed the blind, but the religious leaders are blind. He has given hearing to the deaf, but the religious leaders and those on negative volition are deaf. They are blind and deaf to what he has done and what he is saying. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and tested them. We want a sign. Okay, you've given sight to the blind, the, the deaf are hearing, you've uh, healed the lame, You're, you've just fed a multitude of ten or 12,000 people minimum with seven loaves of bread. Give us a sign. See, the point I'm making here is that, that, see, when we witness, we get caught up in this trap where people want to say, okay, just prove to me that Jesus is who he claims to be. You can't do that. Jesus couldn't do that. He demonstrated who he was, but negative volition has its own agenda, and it overrides whatever proof, because you can't. Prove it. The problem is that when we talk about proving Jesus is the Messiah, proving Jesus is God, proving Jesus who is claimed to be in terms of a what we might say is a scientific proof today, like you'd have in, in the laboratory, you 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 can't do that because negative volition is going to automatically suppress the truth and unrighteousness and warp it and distort it. And the issue is not reason. See, it, it, you, you, you could solve the problem if it was reading. Say, how in the world can this person with an IQ of 150 reject the gospel? They ought to be smarter than that. Well, what you, what have you just said? You've just said the problem isn't sin and negative volition. You've said the problem is intelligence. But the problem isn't intelligence. The problem isn't a lack of evidence. The problem is volition and the orientation of the unbeliever to reject God, Romans 1.18, and to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so that's what we see here. This is the dynamic. John talks about it in John chapter 3 that Jesus was the light and he came into the world. But what happened? They rejected the light because men loved the darkness rather than the light. This is the dynamic of negative volition at work here, is that when Jesus comes, when you explain to people who Jesus is, then they're, they are, if they're negative, they are going to react and distort it and suppress it in unrighteousness. And we see a perfect illustration of that going on here. 
Jesus responds, his responses are always so simple and so sophisticated. He says, now look, you understand that, that if you look at the sky in the evening and, and the sky is red, it's fair weather. If you look at it in the morning and the sky is red, that that's going to indicate foul, foul weather. And you know how to discern signs in the skies. But you can't discern the signs of the times. You can't figure out what most of these people have figured out, and that is that the Messiah is now in your presence. And in verse 4 he concludes, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So there's just going to be a sign of judgment, not other signs, and that's the only thing that they'll recognize. Then he goes to his disciples, and he's going to have a little teaching moment. See, that's what you parents ought to pay attention to, is look at life situations and teach to the moment, and things will come up, and you'll see things happen, and take your kids aside and teach them how to understand and interpret the events that are going on around them. Take them to a movie, and if that movie is a challenge to a Christian worldview, then on the way home, Help them think that through. Now, it's, there's nothing wrong with going to watch some movie that presents a non-Christian worldview. But if you go and you sit there and you just kick it into neutral and you're passive, then what happens is you're just letting cosmic thinking, human viewpoint thinking, influence you at a, at a non-critical level. So teach your kids to be critical thinkers. To, to, to read literature, to read history, to read the newspaper, to watch a movie or a television show, and to think critically and evaluate what they're hearing and what's coming in. Because one day, those kids are going to be out of the house, and they're going to be going off to university, or they're going to be getting a job, and they're going to be living their life, and they need to have those critical thinking skills so that they know how to evaluate things. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. After he has this encounter with the Pharisees, he says, okay, we're going to take the boys off to the side here, and we're going to have a teaching moment. So when his disciples had come to the other side and caught up with him, they had forgotten to take bread. The picture of the disciples is is not that they're this is the 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 twelve guys who are the sharpest knives in the drawer. They forgot to bring bread, and so Jesus says to them, "Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees." And they're so concerned with the physical dimension, the physical fact of the bread, that they respond by saying, "Well." It's because we haven't had any bread. He's mad at us because we didn't bring the bread. So Jesus, being aware of what they said, said, Oh, you of little faith, why do you argue among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand? Now he reminds them, We've already had the feeding of the 5,000 with the five loaves, and then we just had the feeding of the 4,000 with the seven loaves. Now, here's a side point. Liberals who reject the authority of Scripture want to say that, oh, there was only one event where he fed a bunch of people with some loaves of bread, and this is a redundancy. But see, Jesus is telling the disciples there were two different events. Don't you remember we fed the 5,000 and then we read... We, we fed the 4,000. Jesus doesn't isn't confused about what he did. Verse 11, how is it that you, that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, 
but to beware of the leaven. Leaven is always a picture in Scripture of evil and of religion and the leaven of religion, and that's the problem with the Pharisees. It's their legalism that is in view here. Beware of the religiosity and the legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understand that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice how the Scripture in that verse tells you how to interpret Scripture, tells you how to understand what Jesus was just talking about. And then, having said that, he's demonstrated through miracles that he's the Messiah. He's demonstrated through the provision of bread that he's the bread of life. He has been instructing them about the legalism of the Pharisees, and now he drives the point home, and he says to the Pharisees, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So his focus is on teaching them to think in terms of who he is. And the principle here is you have to understand who Jesus is before you can go out and start telling people about what Jesus did. He's preparing the disciples for their ultimate mission is to go into all the world and make disciples or learners or students of the word and taking the gospel throughout the world. They have to understand who he is. You can't understand what took place on the cross if you don't understand who Jesus is. These are not separable items. You can't come in and say, well, I just think Jesus was a good man and he died for us. No, you're, if you, to whatever degree, you diminish or distort the person of Christ, you will diminish and distort and destroy the work of Christ on the cross. They are inseparable. So we must have an accurate view of who Jesus Christ is. Now turn over to the parallel that we were just looking at in in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Just to point out a couple of corollaries. In Mark, the way Mark sets it up, and Mark looks at the details a little bit differently, in Mark 7, 31 and following, whereas Matthew had just given us sort of a grocery list of the different miracles Jesus had performed, he talked about giving sight to the blind and and, and the mute were healed and the, the lame uh, were able to walk. In Mark 8.32 we read, Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. See, we get more detail from Mark than we did from Matthew. So Jesus heals one who is deaf. And then in Matthew, I mean Mark's construction of the account, then he feeds the 4,000, the beginning of, of uh, chapter 8. Then the Pharisees come along and ask for a sign. Uh, then Jesus warns about the leaven of the Pharisees, and he includes the leaven of Herod. So see, he's, he's focusing on different dimensions, but all these things happen at the same time. And then he brings in another healing that is not even mentioned in the Matthew account in verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the room. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. 
and then Jesus, then he can see. Now, why is it that Mark is bringing in specific examples of healing the deaf man and giving sight to the blind? Because the point that he's making is that Jesus is the one who can give sight and that you can hear truth through, but man, but the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are blind and deaf and the disciples, because they have trusted in Christ, they're the ones who understand truth. They have sight and they have hearing. So there's an interesting and important interplay going on here. And then Jesus asked the question to Peter, who do men say that I am? So they answered, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. It's no different today. You ask people, who do you think Jesus was? They'll say he was a good religious teacher, he was a revolutionary, he was a, a spiritual leader. They have all kinds of different ideas about who Jesus was. But you have to anchor who the answer in terms of the Old Testament, and that is what Jesus focuses on. He said to them in verse 29, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said, You are the Christ, and that is the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word, uh, meaning the anointed one. It is the, uh, it is the, the Hebrew form or the Hebrew word, uh, that it's translated Christos in Greek, and they mean the same thing. So what Peter says to them is, You are the Messiah. In other words, you fit the bill. You, we, to understand who Jesus is, you must understand what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. Now let's go to the next question that is uh, asked. We'll just put it up here on the board briefly because this is not, there's not an answer here. This takes place in Matthew 21 verse 10. Matthew 21 10. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. This is beginning the last week before the crucifixion. He's entering into Jerusalem, and when he had come into Jerusalem, we read, all the city was moved. Remember, as he came in, they they, uh, uh, sang glory to God uh, as Jesus entered in, riding on the donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. When he'd come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, and they said, well, who is this? See, that's the question we have to answer. That's the question Matthew asks it, or has someone ask it, three times in Matthew in order to get the reader's attention. Who is Jesus? You have to answer that question and understand the answer to that question before you can understand the answer to the question, what did he do? So they ask the question, who is this? And then the third time we have this question asked in Matthew is in the next chapter. So this is into the, this is like two days before the crucifixion. And in Matthew 22:42, Jesus is having another confrontation with the uh, Pharisees. Matthew 22, 42. He's already had a confrontation with the Sadducees and silenced them, according to verse 34. And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they got together. Okay, let's see if we can uh, trip him up now. And they asked their first question, which has to do with, with the law. Teacher, verse 36, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Uh, 
And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything else that's said in the Mosaic law is really an application of this principle. So, then Jesus turns the table, and I want you to notice the strategy here. See, Jesus doesn't just sit there passively and let them put him on the defensive. See, that's what happens with so many Christians in conversations. You're, you're at some dinner party or you're out with friends and somebody starts asking questions. You're not sure what the answers are. Next thing you know, you're just on the defensive. But Jesus always counters. He immediately turns the table on them. It's a fascinating study to go through and watch and pay attention to Jesus' dialogues with the Pharisees and to see how he turns the tables on them when they begin to question him. So while they have asked him this one question, he says to them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I mean, he just goes right for the juggler. He says, okay, you've got your interpretation of the Old Testament. Who is the Messiah? See, he asked Peter, who do men say the Son of Man is? And Peter said, the Messiah. So now he's going to ask the religious leaders, who do you think, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And in this answer, and in this question, what we're going to highlight is that there are two streams of data in the Old Testament that aren't fully put together until the person of Christ. And these two streams of data have to do with, on the one hand, the humanity of the Messiah, and on the other hand, the deity of the Messiah. And it's present, both streams are clearly present throughout the Old Testament, but it wasn't clear to the Jews that the Messiah was going to bring both of them together in one person. And that doesn't become crystal clear until you get into the New Testament. But once we see Jesus Christ and we have hindsight, then we can go back and we can look at these passages in the Gospels, I mean, in, in, in Gen- from Genesis all the way through the prophets, and we can trace these and we can see these two streams in the Old Testament. We're not sure how much they really understood. Because in the early church, one of the things that we have to go on is in the early church they talked about Jesus being God and man, and they talked about the Father being God and the Holy Spirit being God, but it took them a hundred years before they started thinking analytically about how that went together. They didn't have the term the Trinity. So you can't say they understood the Trinity the way you and I understand the Trinity. That wasn't clear to them yet. They didn't even have the vocabulary word yet. You understand more about the Trinity today than than they did. Because they never expressed it that way. They they weren't thinking quite that analytically about it. So as we've gone through church history, the Holy Spirit has unpacked that meaning from the passages in, in Scripture. Just as New Testament writers were able to go back to the Old Testament, and because they were looking back at these Old Testament passages through the lens of Jesus as the promised Messiah, they were able to unpack 
ideas out of Old Testament prophecies that were a little bit ambiguous at the time they were given and even at the time of Christ. So Jesus is going to focus on one of those passages here. Matthew 22:42. he asked the Pharisees the question, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. See, they're focusing on the human stream. He is the son of David. In other words, they're saying he is just a man. He is a human being. And Jesus is going to come right back at them and quote from the Psalms and focus on the deity. So they say he is the son of David. And so then in verse 43, Jesus says to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, from Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. See, then Jesus shows how to think about Scripture. Notice the detail here. He is exegeting the text for them. He says, look, it's David speaking. I'm going to unpack what Jesus says because he's so compact in his question. He just says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the point that he's making is, in the Old Testament... You have David, who is the king. He's the king over Israel. And in an ancient Near Eastern monarchy, the king is the absolute sovereign. There is no one over the king. There is no one who is David's superior. David is not answerable to anyone. Now, in the psalm, in Psalm 110, verse 1, David is speaking, and he said, The Lord, so you have one personality here, The Lord said to my Lord, second personality. Now, who is the Lord of David? Who's the Lord of David? No human being is over David, so this has to be, can only be, a divine personage. So in Psalm 110, you have a evidence, an evidence of the Trinity. The Lord, Yahweh, sacred, sacred tetragrammeter then, said to my Lord, and that too is Yahweh. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, if David then calls him Lord, if David is saying this personage is Lord, how is he also, because you see the rabbis were interpreting that as the Messiah, how can he also be at the same time a human son? Huh. So they just scratched their heads and walked off. Because what Jesus is pointing out is this second stream of data from the Old Testament, and that is that the Messiah is not only said to be human, he is said to be God. And these two streams of the deity and the humanity of Christ are going to come together in one person. And as I wrap up, I won't get into 
the details on the deity of Christ, but I want to go back to the first prophecy in Scripture. This is sort of preview of coming attractions in Genesis. But let's go back to our first prophecy about the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll see how from the very beginning this concept of the humanity of the Messiah and the deity of the Messiah are joined together and understood to be there from the beginning. This isn't some idea out of Greek thought that gets added into Christian thought at the Council of Nicaea or some other council. This is embedded in the Old Testament from Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what we have here is two seeds. Let's look at the specifics of the passage. God is speaking, and he is addressing the serpent. So on the one hand, we have the serpent and the serpent seed. And on the other hand, we have the woman and the woman seed. Now, when this passage is translated from the Hebrew into the Septuagint, the word that is translated seed that the, that the Jews chose, the Greek word the Jews chose who translated from the Hebrew into Greek, is the word sperma, the word for seed. And this is not what you find in a female. This is the male. So there's an interesting implication here that there is something unique about the descendancy from the woman. And what we'll see when we get to the virgin birth is this has embedded within it a prophecy that, that relates to the virgin birth because the, the, Mary is going to conceive apart from male involvement. She's not going to need a male seed. There will be a supernatural virgin conception. And so she understands from this that there's going to be something special. She's going to be given a descendant who is going to uh, bruise the head, and this bruised head is a fatal wound, and that her seed is going to have a fatal wound against the serpent. Now, let me tell you how she understands that. It's going to be her seed, so that means it's going to be human. But she understands more than that. Look at the first verse in chapter chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So Cain is the first child and the first male child. Now the way you have that translated is not quite accurate. Most English translations say, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That would be, it's based on a sort of a pun, a wordplay on the name Cain, which has a cognate that means to acquire. I have acquired a man from the Lord, except it doesn't say from the Lord. And notice Lord there in your English is 
uh, caps, so that's Yahweh. I have acquired a man from the Lord, but there's no from thee in the Hebrew. And what she says is this, I have acquired a man, colon, Yahweh. See, she doesn't know what's going to happen with Cain. She just got this baby. But she understood from the prophecy that the seed solution is not going to be simply human, but also deity. She's acquired a man, Yahweh. She's thinking that her son, she doesn't realize there's going to be 4,000 years before the Messiah is going to show up that God has to prepare the human race now because of the devastation of sin. He can't just bring in the Messiah in the first generation. There has to be a preparation, 4,000 years of preparation. That's why Galatians 4.4, Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent the Son. So she says, I've acquired a man, Yahweh. She's thinking this is it. And so in her thought, what you see in her thinking is that she has understood at, at however a distorted level, she has understood that the promised deliverer is not only going to be human, but also divine. And that's why she says what she says. So this sets things up because as you go through church history and you from from ancient church history to modern man and you're involved in conversations with people you have two things that are true about Jesus. He is true humanity, and he is undiminished deity. And every heresy that has come down the pike since the first century either distorts or diminishes his humanity, or it distorts and diminishes his deity. Now, in the ancient church... The problem was that they distorted his humanity, and we saw that in the epistles of John with the heresy of Gnosticism and Docetism, that, oh, he isn't fully man because that would somehow uh, uh, cause him to be affected by sin. He's just an apparition. He is just an, an appearance. And in mod- the modern world, the problem is that they challenge his deity. And, and the typical thing that you see is that uh, this whole idea of Jesus being divine, well, that's just some Greek idea that God added on, and that's completely wrong. We have to show that Jesus is who he is, and that who Jesus Christ is is not something that came along late, but it has its roots in the very first mention of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, and it was understood that way by uh, Eve at the beginning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and come to a greater understanding and appreciation of who our Savior is and that it is on the basis of who he is that we have the salvation that we have because he is who he is. He was able to go to the cross and die as a substitute for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God provided a grace solution to man's problem.
a solution that would not be based on anything that you do, but is a solution that's based exclusively on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you have to do is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of ritual or making a uh, some kind of bargain with God. It is a matter of simply accepting a free gift to trust and rely exclusively upon Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for your salvation. Father, we thank you for the insights that we've gained this morning from Scripture, a greater appreciation, greater focus on just who our Savior is. We pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.